I'm thinking that um, today's lesson and one or two more lessons will finish our study in the book of Song of Solomon and uh, haven't yet settled on where we'll go next, but what I'm presently thinking is just to back up one book and do the book of Ecclesiastes. I've never heard anyone do a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a unique book, but uh, there is a great deal of wisdom in it, in, uh, particularly for the believer uh, living his life in this world, and actually with what Solomon says in that book, um, there's some wisdom for the unbeliever because he fools himself into thinking there's some value in this life apart from God. And one of the primary themes of that book is apart from God, everything is just pure vanity. It comes to nothing. But we'll see how that works out in the next couple of, couple of weeks. But if we we'll look now at Song of Solomon, and we got through verse 4 last week. Heavenly Father, bless our study this morning and do not let us get taken up with useless things. Rather, may we see Christ and the grace that he has shown toward us. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen. Verse 5, who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Now, the picture we get here is, um, you know, they, they had gone out into the wilderness, gone far away from Jerusalem to where they had uh, vineyards and things like that. You know, Solomon and, his, and Shulamith had gone together to these places, and um, now they're coming back. And then when it says, who is this coming up from the desert, our modern concept of desert is, you know, a dry and sandy place. And it would be better to translate this simply, the wilderness. Now, desert is a good word for the wilderness because, after all, we use the word deserted. And a desert is a deserted place. That is, it's people don't live there. And so it's the wilderness, and of course the wilderness indicates you know, the first word is wild. It's just wild out there, uncultivated, unsettled. And so, in coming back to Jerusalem, they're coming through the wilderness. Now, there is a picture here, and I don't know that it's necessarily a reference back to the wanderings of the Jews uh, in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land, but that is uh, a figure that's brought up from time to time in the Scripture, and certainly the concept could be applied here for the Lord and his church are often traveling through what may be called a wilderness. And especially do we uh, see ourselves as people in this world. And so far as spiritual things are concerned, we live in a wilderness. We live in a desert. Now, of course, part of the wilderness of uh, the Palestinian area over there, the, uh, the Israel over there, would be the, the dry and thirsty land that the scriptures speak of. But some of it would, just, would be all grown up, 
We don't know what kind of wilderness it was, but wherever they were, there were none others like them. That is, they weren't traveling through an inhabited area where they could frequently stop and see friends or something like that or even just other human beings. They're coming up from the wilderness. Now, in our life, um, much of it is like the wilderness in that we have to spend a great deal of our time among those who are not like us. And uh, you have to be careful saying something like that. I'm certainly not talking about anything in terms of uh, racially or anything like that. I'm talking about God's people are spiritually alive. And we might say that of the creatures of the area, we are tame. We've been tamed. We've had a, a a spiritual mind of reason put into us. Now, we can't take credit for it. We can't exalt ourselves over other people for it. But it is a matter of fact that God finds us in our spiritual insanity, in our innate wildness, such as the, uh, the man possessed of uh, legion demons. Remember him? And he comes to us like that. He takes us from living in the caves, living out in the wilderness, and he restores a right mind in us. Now again, we need to issue a little disclaimer. That doesn't mean a believer cannot experience mental illness. That's another thing. That's a psychological thing. But when it comes to spiritual matters, the believer is in his right mind. He understands what is true. He know, You know, the Lord said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And the Lord, having set that demoniac free from those demons, that man was then free to think rationally. And that is a picture of how once the spiritual forces that held us in bondage, you know, it says the God of this age, and that's not a reference to God, whom we refer to as God. Uh, in both Hebrew and Greek, the general word for God can be a reference to the God, or it could be a reference to uh, any of the other gods that men set forward, invent. And actually, Paul says all these idolatrous gods, they're just demonic entities. You know, what we might say, we might want to say of the mythologies of Greece and Rome and all the idolatries of the various Gentile nations, well, there's nothing real behind them. They're just the product of men's imaginations. Maybe some of them are. But I believe the scriptures would tell us that these spiritual, these forces of spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, as uh, the book of Ephesians refers to them, they have been able to somehow appear and communicate to, or in the, in the case of possession, they could possess a person and cause that person to speak as the oracle of some divine being, and from that arises the worship of these various false gods. So when it speaks of the God of this age, when Paul refers to the God of this age, he's speaking uh, probably of Satan himself, who... Paul also says he has his ministers all over the place. 
They are ministers, uh, uh, they disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, which is a cue to us right away. We need to be wary of everyone that claims to be a preacher representing God. Because, you know, I remember when I was, uh, it was probably in the 60s. So I was born in 55, so that means somewhere between the ages of 5 and 15. But that Anton LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible. And I mean, the the church I was going to at that time, and many churches like it, just kind of like went berserk. Oh no, Satan has written the Bible. You know, and it's going to deceive so many people. Very few people were uh, deceived by it. And the real deception in that book is this. Anton LaVey did not worship Satan. He was an atheist. He was mocking. He wrote that. He didn't believe that that was Satan's Bible. It was a deception. And most of those who call themselves Satanists are just snickering up their sleeve because they think that, for instance, the Christian religion is no more real than Satanism is. Now, there are doubtless some people who, you know, draw a pentagram on the floor and light candles and do all that kind of stuff and think there's something real going on. But when it talks about the God of this age blinding people, what he's generally doing is putting them in some perverse form of the truth. Now, if he puts them in, say, rank idolatry, which I suppose he could do that, you know. um, He can blind them, and that may be, in their blindness, what they wander into. I mean, when I was in India, I don't know how many thousands of so-called gods they have in India because they invent them just on a regular basis, and they've been piling up over the centuries, you know. And um, they may go into that, but do you realize how relatively easy it is for a Christian uh, missionary to go into that situation, and what he's preaching is instantly and obviously different from what the folks of India are worshiping. I mean, it's not hard to see the difference between worshiping some kind of monkey, because that's one of them, monkey god. I was, when I was over there and we were, we were talking to Parshu Ram, he told us that as a, I think starting when he was 13, he was a priest to that monkey god. And of course, this was all before the Lord saved him, but you know, monkey. Well, you come and preach to them, God revealed in the flesh, freely giving himself up as a sacrifice unto a just God, that that just God might show mercy to his chosen one. They see the difference right away. But if you really want to deceive people in a kind of deception that's very hard to um, make clear, turn them into a form of Christianity that's almost right. Spurgeon said discernment is not the ability to discern right from wrong. It's the ability to discern right from almost right. And there are many forms of the Christian religion, and I'm using Christian religion, you know, as 
the, the intellectual world would as they, you know, look at the various religions of the world. Or we could just say, by Christian religion, I mean all of those people who claim to be Christians. Now, some of them, for example, if I were to say what I believe, and then a Mormon were to say what he believes, the difference would be so obvious pretty quick. But there are some out there who we could, if we both wrote up our own you know, statement of faith, you could lay them down side by side. You'd be hard-pressed to find a difference. And yet one is preaching the gospel, and the other is not. Because there is more to the preaching of the gospel than simply the declaration of doctrine that is correct. It involves that, no question. But we are not um, purveyors of doctrine, as we normally use that word. (laughs) Uh, We, you know, when I came here and this church was started, you know, so we, we needed to organize it as a legal entity so that we could own property if we ever had enough money to buy it. And, uh, and frankly, so that they could pay me. Because that, and as soon as you start paying somebody, you become a legal entity in the sight of the government. Well, in doing that, we had to come up with a name. And so, you know, we're all sitting down together. And uh, they had called themselves, up to that point, just Grace Ministries. And uh, that was enough to get them a checking account. You know, but there were no employees. They just gave an honorarium to whoever flew in to preach. But now, they're going to have an employee and all this. Got to get all official about it, you know. And I said, let's make sure and not do this. Let us not put any kind of denominational name in our name. Because first of all, that means anyone who does not consider themselves to be of that denomination will be prone to say, well, that one's not for me. And secondly, for example, you know, we're Baptistic. There's no, you know, anybody that's been here very long would understand that. We believe pretty much what Baptists uh, well, you'd have to go like a century and a half ago, believed. They were virtually all what you would call sovereign grace Baptists back then. But when people see the word Baptist, you know, well, if they're from my generation, they're going to think of Jerry Falwell uh, and others like him. We're not that. <laughs> I'd you know, I don't want them thinking that's what we are, I did, or I didn't want that. And the word Baptist means different things to different people, so you don't put that out there. But that's what the devil does. He gets these, uh, you know, various denominations all coming under the general umbrella of Christianity, and in his churches, no matter what the official denomination is outside, Here's how you can uh, identify one of the devil's churches. And that is simply this. There will be, in their doctrine and in their manner of presenting it, a tendency to direct the attention to you. 
The devil deceives people by turning their attention to themselves. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? He said, did God really say that uh, you can't you know, uh, that you can eat of all the trees of the garden? And Eve rightly replied, well, all of them but this one. And he's going, ah. He says he doesn't want you to eat of that one because he knows that if you eat of that one, you will be like him. And he's got Eve looking at herself, looking at her own, or you know, perceiving things according to her own natural wisdom. And she gets deceived into doing the wrong thing. And all churches that, that are um, products of, shall we call it, the gospel of Satan, you will find in the end the message comes down to you. You will find in the Lord's churches that the message comes down to Christ. The Spirit of God is described this way. He, the, Lord, or the Lord described him this way. He shall take from what is mine, that is, the things pertaining to me, and show them to you. Now, some churches, their doctrines, you know, they may be doctrines of demons, as Paul refers to them, but they may seem very innocent. In other words, for example, the, 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 the churches of, of Satan, far from being black-robed, pointy-capped, you know, mysterious creatures. They are fine-dressed, professional, seminary-trained men. And you'll find them in churches like where the primary message is that we need to be kind to the poor. And the church becomes essentially a, uh, a charitable organization. Now, we should be kind to the poor. Even the scriptures say that. But there's a difference between being kind to the poor and making that what the church is about. And there's some churches you can go to them and you can listen to the message they preach and they can get through an entire message and never even mention Christ. Hardly mention God even in general terms. They're urging the people about how they should treat other people. Well, that theme is in the Scriptures, but it's not the theme of Scriptures. The Lord said, these are the Scriptures that testify of me. So if, if we look at a Scripture and we don't see and preach Christ from it, we're handling it wrong. And we either need to take a bigger chunk of Scripture because we're getting so fine, you know, maybe just a half a sentence or whatever, we're not seen in its context because everything in the Bible is to be understood within the context of Christ and Him crucified. And if it's not that, it's not from God. We live in a wilderness. Just before we started here, we were talking about several uh, who watch us via live stream. About a, two or three but it's one family, but you know, it's two or three generations of that family. But they watch us live stream or later, you know, just go in and, and look at the recording. 
Why is that? They live near very large cities. It's a wilderness. There's lots of people there, but they can't find anyone that believes the gospel as we do. Okay, who is this coming up from the desert, the wilderness, leaning on her lover? As we go through this world, which is a, a, a wilderness to us, we lean upon the one whom we love. We lean on him in dependence. We depend on him, don't we? Where would we be without him? What would we have without him? In the Old Testament it says, who can do us any good? <laughs> Isn't that a good question? Who can do us any good? That is, eternal spiritual good? Who can? Can the church? No, not even the real one. <laughs> not even the true church can do you any good in, in the absolute sense of the word. All they can do is point you to the one who can do you good. The only one who can do us good is God, and more specifically, God as he's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only source of good we have. And so we depend on him, lean on him, in our dependence on him. But I actually think that probably more prominent is here, she leans on him in affection. Now, if you want to get a picture of what this would be like in modern day, or semi-modern days, all cars nowadays have bucket seats. I, I honestly have not seen a modern car with a bench seat in the front in a long, long time. But I remember them with a bench seat. And they were real handy when your girlfriend was there because she could scoot over. You could put your arm around her and look real cool driving with one hand going down the road. I'm that old. I, knew, I, I, I saw it. I did it. She knows. <laughs> That's the leaning speaking of here. She scoots over. She leans on him. Why? Because there is no greater delight to her than to be that close to him. To be as close as can be. Having gone to a, you know, a Bible college, they used to joke that uh, the rule was you had to keep a Bible between you and your girlfriend. One of my friends says, well, I memorized the Bible, so <laughs> they could get pretty close. It's her desire to scoot over and be near him. And I'll tell you this, it was my desire that she scoot over. The church loves nothing more than to lean upon the Lord Jesus Christ in affection. And the Lord Jesus loves nothing more than to put his arm around her and pull her close. Isn't that an amazing thing? And is it not true of you that your greatest dissatisfaction in this life is that those times of feeling that closeness are very rare. Now, we can rejoice in this, whether or not we feel the reality of it. It is nonetheless real. 
The old hymn writer said, Near, so near to God, nearer I cannot be, for in the person of his Son, I'm as near as he. But all the blessedness of those times when the fleshly mind is so suppressed and our thoughts are set so exclusively on spiritual things. We are in the chariot or the car, if you will, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've scooted over. And he's put his arm around us. And we can say, as was earlier mentioned here, I am his and he is mine. Well, the woman begins to speak, Shulamith. And she says, under the apple tree I roused you, there your mother conceived you, there she who was in labor gave you birth. Now that seems kind of strange, you know, the apple tree and then where your mother conceived you. These are all symbols of marital love and then the, um, the child, you know, what is expected would come from marital love, which is children. Apple trees were symbols of both of those things symbols of romantic or marital love, and symbols of birth. And therefore, she says, under the apple tree, I roused you. Um, and she doesn't mean she woke him up. She seduced him, <laughs> is what she's talking about here. And again, you know, in our culture, particularly as Probably all of us would be considered religious conservatives. We're a little careful in how we speak of sexual matters. But a wife seducing her husband, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know? In fact, it's a good thing. It's part of what marriage was designed for. And certainly the spiritual equivalent of that is what our relationship with Christ is designed for. You know, this whole book is using the marital relationship as an illustration of the intensity and intimacy of the love between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. She says, under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you, and she who was in labor gave you birth. And so she says, I seduced you. I called after you. I appealed to you according to the beauty you have given me by grace. And then she references childbirth. That this is where your mother gave birth to you. This is where I'll bring forth children unto you. And is that not our desire? I know that it is the Spirit of God who regenerates the people of God, and yet it's through the agency of the church of the Lord Jesus as she goes out with the message of Christ and preaches it. And as James said, of his own will beget he us through the word of truth. And so we, as the church of God, are pictured as a mother for the wife of the husband of the, this household. And by the ministry he's given us, we give birth to more children. And of course, these children are also, you know, um, considered then to be 
part of the wife. But you know, these are illustrations, and they have to be taken strictly within the context in which they're given. She goes, now place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Now, <clears throat> I heard uh, Oprah Winfrey talking, that was a couple of years ago, I think it was, and they were asking her about her beliefs in religion, and she, she said, you know, that one reason that she just can't, you know, believe in God as the Bible believes in him. It talks about God being a jealous God. And she says, well, why would God want what I have? Well, what that revealed is her misunderstanding of what the word jealousy means. Now, we use jealousy and envy, most of us do, as though they're synonyms. They mean the same thing, but they don't. You envy what belongs to others. You are jealous for what is your own. I remember hearing, you know, um, particularly, you know, in the context of high school romances, you know, some guy would, you know, he'd have a girlfriend and they, others would like the same girl and they would say, oh, these others, they're jealous of his girlfriend. No, they can't be jealous of his girlfriend. They're envious of it. But if he knows that those other boys are angling for his girlfriend, he's going to become jealous of his girlfriend. Jealousy is that which loves, desires, protects, and keeps to oneself those things that belong to oneself. And so when it says that God is jealous, it means that he fiercely protects those who are his own. He will not let them be taken away. It says here that love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding, as the grave. Now, you put someone in the grave. Is the grave going to give him up? No. Not looking at it naturally. The grave is jealous of its own. And there is no power on earth that can cause the grave to give up one of its own. And so it is with the love of our Lord Jesus Christ in spiritual terms. You, there is nothing in heaven, earth, or hell that can make him give up one of his own. He said, I have lost nothing, and he will lose none of them. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Not only does this love burn with that brilliance just as an indication of its power, it also shows the way that this jealous love is going to deal with those who would deprive him of his beloved. Those who become enemies of the church become enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will deal with them in a flaming fire. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot wash it away. Again, that, you know, that's talking about what a great fire it is. Imagine a fire so great that a river flowing over it wouldn't put it out. Such is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people and, quite frankly, their love for him. Then lastly, 
If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Now, what it, that doesn't mean that if you, with all your heart, lay hold of Christ, and it is quite evident that you have, at least in your heart, given up all things for him, and if all things were taken away from you, it wouldn't change your desire for Christ. It's not saying that the world will scorn you for that. Now, it's true that the world will scorn you if that's your love, the level of your love and dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's what it means. If I were to give up everything I have for the love of Christ, what I have given up would be scorned by me as worthless. And Paul gave a good example of that in giving his testimony and his experience of the Lord's grace in Philippians 3, he talks about, you know, how as a Pharisee, or, you know, he's born a Hebrew of Hebrews and circumcised on the eighth day, and he gives his whole pedigree and all those things in which he used to boast, all those things which he counted to be valuable. And he says, but I have lost all for the sake of Christ, and count it but garbage. Paul didn't go around weeping. He wasn't sad of what he lost in his pursuit of Christ because it was nothing to him. Those who are thoroughly dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ do not sense a loss in what they lost in their pursuit of Christ. All right, we'll pick up there next week.